All right. Good morning. Um, we are on studying the Gospels recently. We have been going over that since last week. How do we interpret this genre of scripture called the Gospels? So last week we kind of identified what the Gospels are and why are they different from each other, those accounts on the life of Jesus. Um, we discussed how... Uh, history works and how you have can have some uh, parameters to define why it is accurate and why you can trust and those discrepancies are only apparent when you take into consideration that they were written from four different points of views by four different authors. So today we will get a little bit more in depth in our study and discussion on interpreting the Gospels kind of trying to find some features that are common to this genre. And uh, we'll talk about the audiences, the writers a little bit, and um, we'll also have a discussion on the matter of the kingdom of God, which is very uh, prevalent throughout the Gospels. So, and then next week, Michael is going to walk us through, you know, a step-by-step on if you take a passage, how do you go through this text? What steps do you take for interpreting it? All right. So let's start with a word of prayer, and we'll jump right in. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, this beautiful morning um, that we get to worship you and fellowship with one another. And Lord, even coming together as to understand your word better. Lord, I pray that it will be an encouragement to my brothers and sisters today as they uh, see these different features in the Gospels and give them more confidence as they read them and pay attention to the details of what you're trying to teach us. Lord, we're so thankful that your word is clear and that if you're putting the effort into understanding it, you, through your Holy Spirit, helps us to grasp it and apply it to our own lives. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to do just that, even today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, one of the first um, things that we'll be covering today is the original audiences. Sometimes, you know, for every book of Scripture, we want to realize and understand that those books were written to specific people, a specific group of people, an audience, Intended, obviously, God intended it for us, living centuries and millenniums later, right? But it's, there was something in mind. When Paul wrote the letter to the Ephesians, it wasn't to all necessarily uh, the churches in the area. It was the specific, addressing specific problems that the Ephesians faced. And so with the Gospels, that gets a little bit more... Um, hard to reconstruct because they, they, it's not a letter. It doesn't say to the churches in Ephesus or to the Greeks or to the Jews. So there is a little bit of reconstruction in trying to understand why was this written and to what kind of um, uh, audience this was intended for. Now, even though Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were written to that specific audience, Ultimately, it was written for all believers at all times. 
So the discipline that deals with trying to understand what was the original audience is called redaction criticism. And it has been much effort in trying to reconstruct these situations of these early Christian communities that received these Gospels. So the redaction criticism has kind of veered off in a bad way. It's not a bad discipline, but it has veered off in a bad way because they started questioning and some of the things that we discussed last week. Well, you see those different accounts, so probably that's not true. Or, you know, this was a redaction of the, the, the original writers. And so the discipline is not bad in which they're trying to reconstruct um, the, the text and the audience for what was intended. But then you have these um, turn-offs on, on different paths that it's not helpful. So there were numerous proposals about the evangelists on these original audiences. What, what, what were they like? So I gave you, you remember last week, so if you have on your notes, um, a page there with the four Gospels, some interesting facts and approximate dates. Because, you, you know, the author didn't sign it and put his date, you know, the year of 50 A.D., <laughs> Um, so that is mostly uh, historical documents that um, either the church fathers or uh, historians have been referencing. This is what we think the time that it was written. And then trying to find the, that audience. One of the I want to give you an example here is the Gospel of Mark. Um, Mark um, seems to have focused on the Gentiles or Roman, Roman believers. He, he doesn't take as much time on the Jewish stuff. He doesn't take much time as Matthew would to refer to all the prophecies that Jesus is fulfilling. So he's, he's more broad. He's more focusing on the action and on, on Christ um, being that man of action and, and deeds and miracles and then coming to serve and not to be served. Right, so Christ as the servant is the picture of the Gospel of Mark. Now, you will notice in Mark also emphasizes the disciples' fear and misunderstanding of, of, the, of the events that are transpiring with Jesus. And, and really, it was most likely to reassure and encourage the Gentile Christian audience, possibly Christians in Rome, that have been suffering persecution, and to say, oh, wow, look at, look at these disciples here. And they were fearful. They were apprehensive of, of what was going on with our Savior. That should encourage us, even now, as believers, after Christ's resurrection and his ascension, we can still be encouraged, just like these Initial disciples were encouraged. So this hypothesis dovetails in the insufficient external evidence uh, concerning the composition of Mark. But if Jesus' disciples were prone to failure, yet God was still able to mightily use them. Christians feeling weak or inadequate in any time and place could take heart, too. And today, we can also use the Gospel of Mark to encourage believers that might be struggling with persecution um, in the same circumstance. Another example of this is the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John was the, probably the last gospel written, um, and it was more theological in tone. Um, it, 
a lot of things that the, the other Gospels didn't cover. John just really expanded on that. And one of them has to do with the status of John the Baptist. There's a lot on the John the Baptist uh, in the Gospel of John. Chapter 1, um, the, the several verses speaking on the John the Baptist. And then in the book of Acts later, written by Luke, uh, Luke describes a strange group of disciples in Ephesus, the traditional location of the churches to whom the apostle John later wrote, who knew only John the Baptist and not of Jesus. So these are um, people that believed on what John the Baptist was preaching, you know, of rep- the gospel of repentance, uh, turning to God, but they really didn't know Jesus. So later Christian writings... Uh, it speak of a second century sect in the same area that worshipped John the Baptist. So there is a possibility, and that's what some scholars found, is that quite pos- possibly the fourth gospel, the gospel of John's information about the Baptist was designed to temper any improper, improper exaltation of John at the expense of worshipping Christ, which might have crept in into those Ephesian churches that John later wrote to. And if it was wrong to glorify the human leader of whom Jesus said, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. That's how he portrayed that. Then surely surely it is inappropriate to exalt human leaders of God's people at any age. John the Baptist said, you know, may he increase and I decrease. So contemporary Christians today might choose, therefore, to highlight the full the. Gospel of um, John's portrait of the John, ba- John the Baptist when he's struggling against church leaders who direct too much attention to themselves. All right, well, look at the example here. Here's someone that Jesus said, there, on earth, there's nobody like him. It's really what he was saying. And yet, he has a humility to say, may he increase, Christ increase, and I decrease. I'm just an instrument. I'm just uh, the, the forerunner, the herald to, to point to Christ, really. So I, I put those tables there for you as a reference just so you realize that there is audiences, and that's kind of helpful as it helps us to, to read some of these. You know, and, you know, the, the Gospel of Matthew, the original readers were poss- possibly Jews, and they, Matthew's trying to portray Jesus as the Messiah because he fulfilled all these Old Testament prophecies. So Matthew is really, he's, his style is like a teacher. He, wants, he has a, a, a program that he's trying to prove to the Jews that Jesus is the Messiah that they have been waiting for. So the focus of the Gospel of Matthew is on Jesus' sermons and his words. Right? We, it's the longest account of the Sermon on the Mount you will find in Matthew. Um, and then you have the Olivet Discourse in the uh, chapters 20, um, 23, 24, 25. Um, so really speeches are a big part of um, the Gospel of Matthew. The Gospel of Mark tries to portray, as I just mentioned here, Christ as the servant of God. And you have Gentiles and Romans uh, being kind of the general audience. And Jesus is backed up by his words with actions. 
um, but in Mark's style of writing is really, he's a storyteller. You know, he's trying to grab your attention and he says, this happened. And then, and then immediately this happened and then that happened. So he's really trying to engage his readers and saying, Jesus is this man of action and he performed these miracles that really point he is a divine being. And yet he's, he's a servant. In the Gospel of Luke, on the other hand, which was written by a Gentile, Luke was the only Gentile of the New Testament writers, and he probably wrote it to Greeks, people that weren't familiar. So sometimes he will explain some Jewish tradition that it wouldn't make any sense for a, a Gentile that were reading that account to understand, like, what is, what is going on here? So Luke takes the time to explain, oh, this was because this was the, 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 the habit, this was the tradition, it was the costume of the Jews. So Jesus, though he was fully God, he was also fully human. So he emphasizes this aspect of Jesus uh, spending time with tax collectors, with sinners, with uh, even a, a prostitute, right? And, and, and really bringing this human side of Jesus that he has pity and compassion on the sinner. Luke takes more of approach of a historian. He, you know, in the beginning of his gospel, he says, I have documented these things. I have surveyed and got, gathered materials from oral uh, accounts. And, you know, it's just the focus on Jesus' humanity. And then lastly, the gospel of John uh, portrays Christ as the son of God. It, you know, probably had a, a more broad audience uh, Christians throughout the world, and um, the focus there is belief in Jesus is required for salvation, and he even states the purpose of his gospel. I wrote, I wrote these things so that you might believe that he is the Christ, um, and that so that you might have salvation. So he's really a, a theologian in the way that he writes. He's kind of developing a theological theme and um, bringing that's the gospel that has all the um, I am statements, right? I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. I am, and so forth. This is really the principles of Jesus' teaching. Now, recognizing that the disciples in the gospels represent believers in any age also helps us to avoid certain hermeneutical errors of the past. So trying to understand a little bit the context does help us to avoid some errors. So let me give you a few examples here. Uh, the medieval Catholic Church argued uh, that Jesus, when he taught, he had this two-tiered ethic. So his most stringent demands, such as vows of poverty, were reserved for full-time Christian workers like priests, nuns, and monks, the so-called clergy or religious people. Um, and made a, a huge distinction. So this doesn't apply to us, but applies to only to priests and, and, and the clergy, really. Um, another example of that is the contemporary Russian church that held the view that the Great Commission, uh, probably in, because they were so persecuted, the, the Christian uh, Russian church, um, they held the view that the Great Commission was only for the apostles, and not intended for all believers at all times. Um, some dispensationalists, and we are, consider ourselves dispensationals, 
Um, but there are some sects that they're called hyper-dispensational. And they, particularly here in the U.S., have sometimes maintained that Jesus' disciples, because Jesus' disciples were Jewish, one cannot assume his instructions to them to apply to Gentile Christians. So because they, are, they, were, they were Jewish uh, um, disciples, then what Jesus was teaching them really doesn't apply to us Gentile believers. You see how one can take that to another extreme and make it really uh, to say what is not saying. The scripture provides no support for any of these connections. Um, and the vast majority of the Christian interpreters of all theological tradition down through the centuries have rightly rejected them. All right, so I want to take some time here to discuss what are you know, some misinterpretations that you heard from the Gospels. Um, and based on what you have had been exposed you know, in our interpretation class uh, of Scripture, what, what is wrong with it? So give me an example of uh, maybe a part of the Gospel, um, a parable or a speech made by Jesus that have been taken out of context and misused by different people. Um, and we'll have um, someone passing the mic there. Oh, nice. We have mics on both sides, guys, so please use them. <laughs> Andrew, go ahead. It's common um, sections of Scripture from the Gospels that is taken out of context is used like kryptonite for the believer when mm -hmm. someone says, judge not, lest you be judged. <laughs> And that shuts the conversation down, unless the believer who knows Scripture says, and what does the rest of it say? Mm -hmm. And what is the context? Let me explain this to you mm -hmm. lovingly and respectfully. Mm -hmm. So that's the one I think of. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very good. Um, I, I, I think nowadays, and we'll get here at some point, um, one of the favorite parts of unbelief, you know, that unbelievers appreciate about the Bible is Jesus' teachings, Jesus' miracles, his compassion. They use that so much, right, uh, against the Christian belief to say, here, you guys are not consistent what, with what he, he taught. But in reality, they're taking that out of context to, um, to fit whatever agenda they have, right? Michael over there. I think one of the major areas of Christ's teaching that have been specially taken out of contents or context or have been or has been prone to just wild interpretation are the parables. Mm -hmm. The parables have been subject to um, a lot of allegory, mm -hmm. even dating back to like Augustine mm -hmm. and people who took didn't really know what to do with those, so they make every single item in the parable to mean something mm -hmm. that Christ never meant it to mean. Yeah. So the parables. Yeah. Some some parables are head scratching. And some are, are pretty you know, pretty straightforward. Um and, and, and sometimes and it's even better when Jesus explains the meaning of them, but some do he not he does not explain and he leaves to his readers to get it. Um, so they have been misused, as, as Michael was saying, people allegorizing, oh, maybe this means this, it means that, and well, where, are that, where are you taking that from? 
Normally, reading the parables in its context helps us, right? Um, when normally there is a little indication, and before he, Jesus starts telling the parable, it says, and Jesus, seeing that the Pharisees were self-justified, he went on and told these parables that was attacking their self-righteousness, all right? We had uh, Ben there, Ben Teal. Matthew sixteen eighteen. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Mm-hmm. And it goes on. It's just uh, mm-hmm. a uh, cornerstone of the Catholic faith. I like to use this verse. In a yeah. Peter was the first pope. See, it says like here, it was Peter that built the church. Uh, well, what, what stone is he talking about? Just read the verses before Peter's confession there about the Christ, like who he is, that's the foundation of the church, is the confession of what, who Jesus is and what he has done for us. Anything else? Anyone? Heather, over there. <laughs> um, I think of John 3.16, <clears throat> where people hear, you know, God for so loved the world, mm-hmm. um, whoever believes in him. And so a lot of people like to think, well, I know Jesus is real, and um, I don't need to live for him. I, I know he's real, so I'm, I'm good. I'm saved. Mm-hmm. And that's just on the surface. Yeah. The, the superficial belief, right, using that verse, we're like, what does that mean? Well, there's one verse that talks about salvation, but it's not all that is. Other verses will talk about the matter of repentance, which sometimes get, gets left out if a person is just using John 3.16 as a way of presenting the gospel and they neglect the understanding of, you know, there's also the fact that you're actually living your life behind to follow him. It's not just a ticket out of hell, right? Um, all right, anybody watched Super Bowl last week? No, me neither. But <laughs> but something is going. I, I don't know if you guys, anybody here heard of, um, would like to, to get a take and speak on that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there was a commercial, um, and, and it's, you know, a lot of Christians already wrote. There were two. I, okay, I just watched one. <laughs> and it's an AI um, kind of design, uh, pictures, portraits of different people washing the feet of others. Basically, they have a, the priest and the transgender person, so the priest is washing the feet of transgender person, the white uh, oil field worker with a Native America and environmentalist. So there's, you know, the person in power, according to their agenda, is washing the feet of the person that is in the disadvantage. The woman and the girl looking to get an abortion, right? And there's someone washing the feet of that woman and the suburban mom and the immigrant woman coming off the bus. The police officer washing the feet of a black man in a black alley, in the, in the back alley. So, and then they're saying, you know, they, they kind of start growing this story um, to, a, to a crescendo. And he came 
to he what did what did they say? Um, he gets us, and then he came to wash feet. And I I want you guys to give it a, a take on this, because they're obviously referring to the moment that one moment in scripture that Jesus washed the disciples' feet, and they're saying, here's his mission. He came to wash feet. And, all right, what, what would you say based on what you have learned so far? All right, well, do you want to expand on that, Eric? <laughs> they're making full... Uh, taking full advantage of the oppressed versus the oppressor, of course, the critical theory, the neo-Marxist, all that stuff. Mm -hmm. But they're leaving out the second half of what Christ told his disciples. Mm -hmm. Okay, now you go do likewise. Your feet have been washed. Mm -hmm. Now go wash somebody else's feet. Mm -hmm. And so they're leaving out, okay, well, this supposedly oppressed individual who we should be praying for and humbling ourselves before and sharing the gospel and uh, ministering to others. But what about them now going out mm -hmm. and taking that forgiveness from Christ and washing the feet of others? Mm -hmm. So it's not just the oppressor washing mm -hmm. the oppressed's feet. Yeah. It's all being redeemed mm -hmm. and going out and evangelizing the rest. Yeah. So um, it's interesting because the they make it sound like this is Jesus' mission. You know, he came to humble himself, to serve. And in a sense, he did, right? He, the Gospel of Mark talks about that, that he um, came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. What, what that means is Christ coming to serve had a purpose in mind, and in his first coming, primarily, it was his sacrifice on the cross for for redeeming sinners, for giving them forgiveness and giving them a new life and direction. What these people are, are, are saying is, you know, Christians, you should be going out and doing this. I'm like, well, well when we go to the, the abortion clinic and present the gospel of Jesus, then you get mad at us. And they say, well, he didn't teach hate. Oh, really? I mean, he, he, he was not a hateful person. That, that's a fact. But he is preaching that if you want to come after me, you have to deny yourself. And it's so much so that if you don't love me more than you love anybody else in your life, and even some passages say that if you don't hate your father or mother, you're not worthy of me. So it's a radical teaching that Jesus brought that they are leaving out because they have an agenda in mind. So have a... Um, I think not only that, but they're leaving out the part that you're a sinner. Mm -hmm. you know, they forget that. They, they leave that part of the equation out. God is love. You know, if you look at 1 John 4, it says God is love. And I know a lot of people, a lot of Catholics that kind of focus on that. God is love. God loves everyone. And he does. However you need to recognize that you're a sinner and enemy of God first. And all these commercials that come out, all this propaganda that comes out, doesn't address that. Mm -hmm. It doesn't address the reason for Christ's coming. Mm 
the reason for him dying on the cross, humbling himself to the point of death on the cross. Mm-hmm. So the commercials, yeah, they, they, they show that we ought to love everyone because God is love. Mm-hmm. That's true. But why are we to love everyone? What's the purpose of that? And who is our example? Christ. But why did he have to come? Mm-hmm. So they leave the first part of that equation out. And that's, you know, that, that's, I've seen that from Catholics all my life where God's cool. That's great. But you're not a sinner. So keep doing your good works. Do your good deeds. Wash other people's feet because that, that tips that scale in your, your half mm-hmm. then, right? That, that kind of adds the weight to your side of that scale, which mm-hmm. is obviously false. Very good. And here's another question, all right? When Jesus said, just as, you know, I've done unto you, you do to one another. A new commandment I have to you, that you love one another in this way, in this humble way. Now, who is one another? (laughs) Who is he talking to? He's talking to disciples, to his followers, to believers, and he's saying, you wash each other's feet. And, and really, that was a, a representation of, you know, you humble yourselves and you serve each other humbly in the same way that I served you humbly. But it, it's really among Christians. It's not talking about evangelism at all. It, it's not talking about us going out to the world. And yes, do we have to go out to the world? Great commission. You go make disciples. The washing feet is not an evangelistic passage. Do you want to see the other occasion where um, there was a washing of feet? It was a, a female washing Jesus' feet, remember? I mean, if you, if you put that on that ad, it would be shocking. How dare it? And she used her hair as a towel. All right, so it... It, you just take things out of context and you, you, you don't really get why, why was this written and this is to disciples. So just a, a, an example that is contemporary here of what we see in the world where people are uh, misrepresenting the Gospels, right? So this leads us to the next point here um, that I, I put there also a chart for you. It's the theme of the kingdom of God. The theme of the kingdom of God. The, the central theme of Jesus' teaching is the announcement of the arrival of the kingdom of God. He keeps saying the kingdom of God is at hand. Or sometimes you'll say the kingdom of God is already here. The kingdom refers more to a power than to a place. More to a reign than to a realm. The, the kingship perhaps better captures the sense of authority to rule. So interpreters continue to debate to say, what is, what, what is it? The kingdom was already started or is still going to happen on his second coming? When is the kingdom started? When did the kingdom start? Back then or now or in the future? Yes. All of it. Um, some defer, right? And then, and then you also have the different views that will, will veer off um, to advocate certain things that contradict Scripture. For instance, we have people that think that, well, the kingdom, since the kingdom is now, then we have to bring about the kingdom of Christ. So we have to bring social justice to this earth. 
we have to bring prosperity to this earth. And they really veer off on the mission of the church, and, and you will see church doing church, nothing wrong with mercy ministries, but the church becomes all about the mercy ministries. Oh, we want to repair the social injustices in this world. We're offering services to our community. Are you offering the gospel? I mean, I, I see nothing wrong with you doing those things, but are you offering the main thing that you were called to do? But it's a misunderstanding of the kingdom, really, because they think, well, we got to bring the kingdom here to the here and now. Um. So a related question asks whether Christians' primary task is to encourage personal transformation or social reform. Is this our, our mission? A correct understanding of the relationship of the kingdom to the church and to Israel also seems vital. You know, that's why you have those that say, well, the church completely replaced Israel. Now we have the kingdom of God, and that is both of them, and, and there's no such a thing as, as Jewish people anymore. So we would agree with a fair number of interpreters who believe that the kingdom of God has arrived in part at Christ's first coming, but awaits for its full consummation at his return. This view is also known as inaugurated eschatology. It basically refers to Christ's first coming as the inauguration of the kingdom, but we await for his second coming when there will be a consummation of this kingdom. Like an inauguration at the beginning of a president's term of office, Jesus inaugurated God's kingdom at the beginning of his reign, even though much more awaits fulfillment. Because he could personally preach to only a handful of the world's population, Jesus' priority during his lifetime was to gather around himself a community of followers who would live out the principles of God's kingdom. These followers, as they made new disciples, could eventually demonstrate God's will for all the world concerning human life in community and in society. Now, the, the point of that discipling was really to proclaim the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ and God's coming, upcoming judgment. Personal conversion, repentance from sin and faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord alone secures eternal life and prevents eternal punishment and separation from God. So it must take priority over social transformation. If this is what Christ came to do in his first coming, that should be the priority for us as a church. But challenging sinful, systematic structures forms of a, uh, a crucial part of God's purposes for his world as well as must not be neglected, you know, if you have an opportunity to help someone in need. Maybe God might use that to show the light of Christ to them. I don't see nothing wrong with it, but really using that as the main mission and confusing that, oh, the kingdom of God is here and we ought to bring it about. So we got to put people in politics. We got to have Christians in the Congress. We got to have Christians in the hospitals and, and the police and Amen to that. We can have those, but that's not what we're called here to do. We're not called here to transform this world. We're called to transform hearts with the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
So students need to keep in mind all these aspects when they interpret Jesus' teaching. The kingdom does not equal the church. The church is the group of believers in all ages over whom God reigns, who demonstrate to the world the presence of his kingdom. Nor was the kingdom something offered exclusively to Israel, rejected and then replaced by the church. What Jesus referred to as the mystery of the kingdom was not a shift from Israel to the church, but the surprising fact that the kingdom of God had arrived without applying the irresistible power that many had expected. There was confusion in the first century when Jesus came and he kept saying that the kingdom was here because they thought, here's our political leader. He's going to take us into the millennial kingdom. This is it. And they were frustrated with it when they witnessed his death on the cross. What kind of Messiah is that that dies? Well, a Messiah that came to save you from your sins. That's who he is. So let's consider, for example, here the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, 3 to 12 and, and Luke 6. It is probably significant that these versions begin with the present tense. So this is, you know, on the, the Beatitudes, theirs are the kingdom of God or yours is the kingdom of heaven. But between those statements, um, there is present promises uh, and future tenses, future tenses promises. They will be satisfied. Right? Those who mourn will be satisfied. So there is an element there that is future. People who live in the way that Jesus describes in the Beatitudes, the poor, the mourning, the meek, are spiritually blessed in the present life, in the present through life in Christ and his church, but they can only full expect compensation for their suffering in the life to come. Does that make sense? We, we experience some advantages and blessings of God's kingdom in this age, but we shouldn't wait full, consummated fulfillment of all Christ's promises during the time, his lifetime here on this life. So we shouldn't expect that everyone will be healed. Um, in the same way that in Jesus' time, not everyone was healed. Um, he healed a lot of people. But guess what? All of them died. Even, even Lazarus, who was raised back to life. So, again, the correct understanding of the kingdom theology prevents us from driving an improper discrepancy between Matthew and the Gospels. Um, the Gospel of Matthew says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. In Luke 6.20, Blessed are, the, are you the poor. Those who are blessed are both the materially and the spiritually poor. So he might be referring to poor people. Uh, poor believers that struggle in this life. But guess what? In the life to come, you won't be poor. Right? But you might remain poor in this lifetime. Or the Lord might please to change your circumstances even today. But understanding the kingdom, it, that there is an aspect that is present now, but that is future, helps us not to mess up our expectations regarding the kingdom of God. So, when um, Matthew 6.33, how about we read there? Matthew 6.33, the well-known verse. 
But sing for, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. All right? If you read the first verses before the, the verses before that, he's speaking of being anxious about what we're gonna eat, what we're gonna dress, and being anxious about life. Oh my goodness, if things go wrong in my life, what's gonna happen? And it says, do not be anxious. Don't, don't seek these things. And what are these things? Adequate food and drink and clothing. It says, they shall be yours. It will be added to you in time. Now, we must avoid the two opposite misinterpretations. One error assumes that Jesus has guaranteed health and wealth or even a minimally decent standard of living for all who put him first in their lives. Many faithful believers throughout church history, and particularly in the majority world today, simply do not experience these blessings. Right? They're, they're not completely um, wealth or, or have complete health. I mean, all of us can attest to that. And it's almost, I, I like what the author of this book says it says it is almost diabolical to accuse all such believers of having insufficient faith. Think about uh, Johnny Erickson Tata, right? That she, when she had her accent and she um, was became tetraplegic, she sought answers. And here, you know, people with the prosperity gospel saying, you know, you have to believe and Christ will heal you. And if you're not healed, it's because you don't have enough faith. It's just cruel. Um, Jesus didn't heal everyone on this earth. And some of his disciples might have had issues and they weren't healed. On the other hand, we dare not to so spiritualize the text that it no longer makes any demands on God's children to help their destitute brothers and sisters in material ways. Right? You, can, you can also take this too far to say, oh, there's no physical element of this. We, we shouldn't even care to supply the needs of those in need in the church. Well, there are other texts that do challenge us to be hospitable, to be carrying uh, one another's burdens. So we shouldn't go on those extremes in interpreting this passage. Um, in fact, Mark 10, let's go to Mark 10. Mark 10, verse 29 and 30. Here's, um, if you think in the context of the kingdom of God that Jesus was preaching, he says, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house and brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but he will receive a hundred times as much when? Now, in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. So there is an aspect that in this life, we, we do get blessings. And the Lord pleases, and he knows, he, he does what he pleases. 
right? I, I think in the application of um, even widows in our church or single people in our church, and they might think, oh, I don't have, they might not have any family members coming to the church. But then you look at this family, you have a hundred <laughs> brothers and sisters and, and children to care for. <laughs> Right, so there, there is some of those blessings in this life, but more in the life to come, eternal life and a perfect um, life with the Lord. So eternal life in the age to come. In other words, Jesus anticipated that his followers would share material possessions with each other. That will happen in Acts, right? Perhaps the simplest summary of Jesus' theology of the kingdom is on the slogan, already, but not yet. You probably heard that before. Christians are struggling with faltering ministries or difficult personal circumstances, as well as those currently experiencing many victories and triumphs, need to consistently temper their despair or enthusiasm by reminding themselves of both halves of this slogan. Right? Did you, did you catch this? I'm going to say it again. So those that are experiencing victories and triumphs, they need to realize that the kingdom is here, but it's not yet. It's already here, but it's not yet as Christ intended. There's still sin in this world. We still have our decaying bodies. But one day, all of that will be transformed. And those who are discouraged to think, oh, this is such a horrible thing, well, the kingdom is already here, and you get to experience a little bit of it, and especially in the church, when we come together in worship and to encourage one another. That's really an experience of God's kingdom. All right, so in that chart, I, I like the way, um, summarizing everything i said so far, the already and not yet nature of the kingdom, the inaugurated kingdom, Jesus came, he inaugurated the kingdom, but the kingdom will be consummated on his second coming. And the nature of this kingdom is primarily spiritual and not political. One day, Christ will be reigning in all the earth. But right now, he's just reigning spiritually in the hearts of believers, reaching out this world. Um, any questions? So far, your comments on this. I know it's, it's not something that we, we, we think about when we read the Gospels, but you, know, you should keep in mind, is this referring to the already, or is this referring to the not yet when I'm reading this? All right. So let's move on to our next section. This one, I'm going to move fairly quickly. And it is special literary forms in the Gospels. So that is actually um, at the end of, of your chapter, the last two pages of your chapter in the Gospels. Um, it's just some key um, textual things that you will find when you're reading the Gospels. One of them is the use of exaggeration. The use of exaggeration. Jesus is a master uh, in using this um, exaggeration or hyperbole to connect in a powerful way with his listeners and drive home his point. Exaggeration occurs when the truth is overstated for the sake of the effect to such an extent that a literal fulfillment is either impossible 
or completed completely ridiculous. It's like when someone says, oh, I studied for this test forever. Well, you, you really didn't study forever. You just make exaggerating to make a point. I studied for a long time. That's what you really mean. Oh, I, I'm so hungry that I can eat a cow. You can't literally possibly eat a whole cow in one sitting. <laughs> but you, you mean it as, I'm so very hungry. So in some of these uh, exaggerations, one of them, the most common one is Matthew 5, verse 29 30, where he says, If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to, be, to go into hell. Obviously, Jesus is not talking about self-mutilation. He, he's not encouraging people to go off and cut their limbs, literally, um, it, it would contradict a lot with what God has said, right? He came, he came he, here, here he is healing people from disabilities and trying to have them to become maimed. It's a little bit contradictory. What he's saying is you do whatever it takes to take off anything that will be hindering you from coming to Christ. Right, or um, to following him and doing his will. Another example of that is Luke 14, 26, where he says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father or and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Is Jesus telling you literally to hate your parents? To hate your spouse? No, he's not saying that at all. If you compare to other parts where he does talk about the calling of following him, he's saying, you need to love me more than you love anyone else. That is the point of that. Mark 10, another example where he uses exaggeration. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard it is to enter in the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. I mean, can you fit in a camel into the eye of a needle? Obviously not. That is impossible. But then that's why he says... The, the disciples answer with that exaggeration, like, so who can be saved then? Well, what is impossible with man, it is possible with God. That makes the point, doesn't it? When you see exaggeration in the gospel, do not force a literal interpretation or you miss the real meaning of the passage. Imagine the awful implications of thinking that gouging your right eye would actually cure the problem of lust. It doesn't. Blind people struggle with lust too. Maimed people struggle with lust. So it's not a matter of external 
change in behavior. It is a matter of being radical to change from the inside out. So figurative language can carry a meaning and corresponding application every bit and as radical as anything that is literal. All right, so let's move on to the next, not next feature of the Gospels. You will find when you're reading the Gospel metaphor or similes. When Jesus says to his disciples, you are the salt of the earth, he's not literally saying that we are salt, <laughs> rocks of salt walking. Or to the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, you are like whitewashed tombs. Um, I thought it was interesting. I don't know if Michael had saw those, but in Jerusalem they have those pillars that were there at Jesus' time, and they were tombs, um, you know, of, of important people. People of um, had a lot of money, so they made these beautiful uh, tombs. They're white, painted white, um, and you know, in the sunny. Israel, you see that thing shiny and bright, and it says, you know, you are like those whitewashed tombs. On the outside, beautiful, just wonderful, a sight to behold, but on the inside, you're like, you're full of dead bones and all this stinkiness. It's, saying you're, it's really, you're, you're appearing to others as someone who is pure, who is um, acceptable, but on the inside, you have all this junk, all these bad things that you need to deal with in your heart. So this is a, a metaphor. So a metaphor, it, it will be implicit. Um, the, the comparison will be in, in, in implicit in the sentence. So be as shrewd as snakes or as innocent as doves. So whenever you see the as or like, that is a simile. He's comparing two things. But then when you don't see these things, and it doesn't make sense literally, it's probably a metaphor. So let me read this one, and then you're going to tell me if this is a simile or if it is a metaphor. Jesus is speaking in Luke 13. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often have I longed to gather you, your children together as a hand gathers her cheeks under her wings, and you are not willing is that a metaphor or a simile? Hmm? Louder. A simile. a simile. Why? He's using ass or the word like. All right. So you understand. Find the comparison intended by the author, and then you found the meaning of a metaphor or a simile. It might help you to visualize the figure of speech since the visual image carries the emotional impact of that picture. Now, when pressed too far, the comparison, the comparison breaks down and the point itself is lost. And worse yet, a thousand points blossom in its place of all unintended by the author. I mean, people can take up this salt of the earth. You are the salt of the earth so far and <laughs> make so many applications of that that it's like, well, we really we just didn't intend that to go this far. <laughs> you know, he did say that you're here to uh, temper and, and to protect this world, prevent this world from going to complete corruption um, and decay. All right, another one is narrative irony. I'm not going to 
spend a whole lot of time on that one. Uh, you can read there in a the book that's pretty self-explanatory. Um, there is an expectation for the story to go one way, but it goes another way. An example of that that is not in the book is Jesus telling the parable is these two sons where a father comes to them, who is going to work out in the field with me today? And then one says, I'll go. And the other says, no, I won't go. Um, and then you would expect that the one has said, I will go, will go, but he doesn't. It's an irony. And the one who said, I won't go, is exactly the one that goes. So it's, a, it's an, an ironic ending. And he, they give the example in Luke 12 of the, the rich man who says to himself, I'm going to build up bigger seller for my, for my crops. And you think, oh, he, this man is prosperous and he's going to be even more prosperous. But then someone comes and, and tells him, foolish, you don't know that tomorrow your soul is going to be taken and all that you have built is going to be for who? Right? So that's irony. Um, it, that you will find in the narrative. You will also find rhetorical questions. That's a very common trait uh, in Jesus' teaching is rhetorical questions. If you, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Jesus is not expecting a, an answer for that. He's, he's just stating a fact. Obviously, the answer will be, no, no, none. Can, he, can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? It's another one. Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? Do you think that I came to bring peace on earth? Obviously not. I came to bring division, and he's going to speak that later, right? Um, so a, a simple way when... Well, so when Jesus asks a rhetorical question, you don't get the feeling that he wants an answer. Rather, he's making a strong statement in a creative way. The best way to approach rhetorical questions is to turn them into statements. So look at how we might transform these sentences. So Matthew 5:46, you don't get any reward for loving those that only love you. Only those who love you. Um, the other one is you can't add a single hour to your life by worrying. You are afraid and you still have no faith. That's what he's really telling them. He's asking you, are you why are you afraid? And why you have no faith? Well, you are afraid and you have no faith. That's what he's saying. I did not come to bring peace on earth. That's really what he meant by those questions. So by transforming rhetorical questions into statements, you will clearly see what Jesus intended to communicate. Right. One more here uh, is parallelism. Parallelism is <laughs> an expression we use to describe a relationship between two or more lines in a text. This is very similar to what Proverbs does, right? They state one thing and they repeat the same thing with different words or with different characters. Um, and or they might be comparing two contrasting things that parallel is made with things that are different, putting in opposition to each other. And then um, the third type is development, developmental. 
getting, I'm getting over my time here, getting tired. So let's, let's see a few of these examples. Matthew 7, 7. So basically, note this, the lines basically say the same thing in a similar way. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be open to you. So all three statements kind of saying the same thing. You go after it, and you will get it, right? Encouraging prayer. For whatever is written is meant to be disclosed, and whatever is concealed in parallel to hidden is meant to be brought out in the open. Another form of describing disclosed. So the repetition with the different words try to emphasize this is an important thing for you to pay attention. Or contrastive. The second line contrasts or contradicts on the first line uh, in comparison. Whoever has will be given more. And then whoever does not have even what they have will be taken from them. So there are those that have and those that don't. Then you're contrasting. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him. And an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. It's contrasting sentences. And then the, last, the third one is the second line repeats part of the first line, but then advances the thought to a climax and makes it even more intriguing, more important. So here's the example in Matthew 10, 40. Anyone who welcomes you welcomes me. So he's progressing. Welcomes you, welcomes me. And anyone who welcomes me also welcomes the one who sent me. So he's increasing in the in the degree of importance. Right? He welcomed you. He's also welcoming me. And if he's welcoming me, he's welcoming the Father. All those who the Father gives me will come to me. It's another one, John 6, 37. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive them away. They will come close to me and I'll never let them go. All right, what, a, what a blessing. Okay. I think we got over our time here. I'm not going to cover parables. Um, I will send uh, a couple of lectures, actually, on parables. Um, but bring your questions next week on the parables, um, things that you might be thinking about. Like, how do you really get to understand this? Um, and Michael will be teaching us next week. All right? Let's close uh, with a word of prayer. Gracious Father, thank you for... Uh, your great promises that we have in Christ. We're thankful for uh, the Gospels and uh, why they were written and these different areas, Lord, that you want us to understand who you are and why you came um, and the different aspects of your kingdom. Help us as a church, Lord, to um, bring clarity in the world of confusion that uses your word to their own advantage, to their political agendas, their ideologies, and may we bring truth to bear on the beauty of the gospel of Christ. Lord, we're thankful for your words and the hope that they give us of a new age to come where you will reign on this earth and there will be no unrighteousness that will go unpunished. There will be uh, where all the 
wrongs will be right, and we will see you face to face physically on this earth, Lord. We're, we're so eager for that day. I pray that you would help us um, as we prepare our hearts to worship and celebrate communion in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.